Welcome to the conversation. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of the Benjamin Dixon Show. Joining us now is Baroness Beban Kidron. She is the founder and chair of the Five Rights Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Pleasure is ours. Could you tell us a little bit about the Five Rights Foundation? So we, we exist to build the digital world that young people deserve. And when I say young people, I mean children and teens. And our view is that you want to be tech positive, kids want to be online, but it's gotta be designed in a way that actually observes their rights, meets their needs, and actually keeps them safe. Mm. I This is a particularly interesting topic for me because I'm trying to figure out that balance now for, for my kids. Um, and I'm looking into uh, um, your work at the Five Rights Foundation. Um, tell us about the Twisted Toys campaign because it really exposed some things to me that I wasn't, I wasn't aware of and I'm constantly online. That really makes me happy that you said that, Benjamin. So thank you for that. The twisted toys happen because for years I've been trying to explain things like why data protection matters, why the design of service matters, why you can't just leave it to parents and kids. And so what we did was we reimagined traditional toys but put all the problems of the digital world into those toys. So, you know, we imagine what it would be like if a bear actually took all the data and shared it and nudged you in the way that digital tools do. Or about how if a, a, a walkie talkie actually introduced you to strange adults and that could ask you to do things mm. and we call it the stalky talkie. So we have a whole host of toys that you can see on the website twisted-toys.com. Yeah. And what they do is they they try and explain in 60 seconds what it's taken me at least eight years to explain to the to, to the lawmakers. Oh, that is that is a powerful, powerful tool. We have one of those advertisements. Let's take a look at Twisted Toys. Bringing the online world to life, Twisted Toys presents Share Bear, the bear that learns everything about you, then sells the data for profit. I'm just a titty bear. Share Bear has all the features you need in a cuddly best friend. Location tracking, conversation monitoring, remote activated camera. I'm watching you. He makes predictions about your life. You look sad today. Here's an advert about losing weight. But remember, he's not keeping your secrets. There's Sold straight to billion dollar tech companies instead. Sweet dreams, I'll be tracking you. Caution, ShareBear uses poor data practices. Your privacy will be violated. You'll be relentlessly sold to. Companies will exploit children with impunity. Keep away from fire. Wow, that is, um, that is powerfully compelling um, to the point where I, I wish that it was a real product that ran that commercial every time so that so we can remind people um and and that this is these are this is not adults being targeted in this fashion children as well as well in fact everybody online and i think it's important to point out it's not a teddy bear every every person who has one of these you know that's what it does when you're online they track you and they target you and i think what's really compelling about the campaign is although we've tried to make it funny we've tried to make it accessible what we have done is based every single toy on real events 
that we know happen in the world. Yeah, normal things that happen as you use your telephone, as you use your computer. So, so these are not unusual, they're mm. normal. And we're saying not okay for kids, not okay to have this as the norm. Tell us about the stalky talkie because that that it's a reality when you think about how much our kids are online in these games. Um, and the there's there's just so much accessibility, not just in the games, obviously anywhere online. Yeah, so stalky talkie is really about friend recommendations. Mm. So automated, if companies automate introductions, they're doing it to build their network. The bigger their network, the more valuable the company, the more data they get. But in doing that, they don't really take care about who they're introducing. So when we launched Stalky Talkie here in England, we asked parents, how many parents knew that their kids could be contacted by strangers through really the things that they normally use online? Nearly 60% didn't know at all that it was possible. And when we asked them, did they think it was okay? 86% of them said, absolutely not, it should be forbidden. So we campaign to the tech companies and say, do not have this feature if the user is under 18. Mm. So how do, how has your campaign, um, how do you address this in addition to uh, what you're doing now? Like what kind of results are you seeing in terms of the awareness and in terms of the tools that you help people who come to you for information? Like what would you tell them in terms of how to protect themselves against this monstrosity that is the internet and the algorithm? <laughs> I love the language you use, monstrosity. I think there's three things really simple. First of all, you know, you need to know, so you need to know it's a really important issue for you and your family and, and actually for the people who represent you. So you've got to make it, push it up the political agenda. I think interestingly, from where you sit, I saw a letter go out from three, one senator, two congresswomen today to the tech companies saying, Actually, we want better protections for kids based on some of the work that sits behind this campaign. So we're seeing lawmakers say, hang on a minute, we don't like this. We, we want better for our kids. And I think that's the third piece is, you know, it's a call out for the tech companies say, okay, you know what, we're prepared to have a conversation about adults, about what, where your commercial interest versus adult experience lies, but on kids, safety first. It's appropriate. And as you can see at the end of our campaign, we say we do not allow this anywhere else. We must not allow it online. I'm curious because with every connection that is severed, as you described, the they make their money, tech companies, social media companies particularly make their money off of those connections. With every connection severed, that is actually revenue that's lost. So I imagine you're getting in some ways like, you, we would expect some pushback the more we try to protect our privacy because that those are real dollars at stake for these tech companies. I think that's right, but I think that actually we can think of it a different way, which is, you know, it's been about 150 years here in the UK since we took kids out the chimney and we put mm. them in school and we said, that's it, they get a childhood. We like this idea of childhood, they get special privileges, they grow up. When you grow up, you got a deal, right? But, but 
So I'm saying we want tech to be progressive, we want it to be careful. And actually what we really want is for them not to shove the kids back up the chimney and say work for the man. And say actually that's not acceptable profit. Take the kids out the business model and then we'll deal with the rest. Do you feel like there's any hope then for, because it seems as though this level of protection that we're seeking is possible because we're all in somewhat of agreement for our children. But what about the rest of us? Because we're we're mined daily on a constant basis. And I know this may not be in the purview of, of five rights, but at the same time, you all have the right idea in terms of privacy. I think that the way I look at it, we owe it to our kids. It's a duty of care, it's non-negotiable. But I do take your point, which is once we see what good looks like, maybe the rest of us will get a little bit more appetite for good. And one of the tricks I think that we've suffered is people saying it's not possible. Now it is possible. I've seen it happen, I can see the changes. And I'm really optimistic that there is a better digital world for us all. But let's start with the kids. Could you describe for us with the time that we have left, describe for us again, what does that better digital world look like? And of course, we're talking about for kids. Yeah. It looks like privacy by default, high levels of privacy by default, take the kids out the business model, make sure all the features that they use are safe. Yeah, do not put them at risk and observe their rights. We know that kids have existing rights, deliver them online and off equally, period. Absolutely the case, I I, I wonder if um, where, and to what extent this kind of information has been just the knowledge. Because as a parent and a person who's online all the time and listening to you as you describe the parents that you talked to and how many of them were surprised because they didn't know this. How much of this information has been known for some time and knowing that parents like, it feels like there was a duty of care that needed to be had for parents because we would have done something about this a long time ago. Could you just speak to that? We only have a few seconds left here. Yeah, no, you're right. And and, and I have to say Twisted Toys has been a magnificent campaign because parents have reached out to us and have said, thank you, thank you. I knew something was wrong. I just couldn't articulate what it is. I'm gonna share this, I'm gonna explain it. In my community. Well, thank you so much, Baroness Beban Kidron. Thank you so much for your work as well as for the Twisted Toys and getting the word out there. Because I know a lot of parents, including myself, we're going to spread the word because while we try to protect our kids, sometimes we don't know what we need to be protecting them from exactly. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much, Benjamin. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure is ours. Welcome back, Benjamin Dixon, host of the Benjamin Dixon Show. Joining us now is Professor Mia Bloom. She is the International Security Fellow at New America and Professor at Georgia State University and co-author of Pastels and Pedophiles Inside the Mind of QAnon, Stanford University Press. Professor Bloom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. The pleasure is mine. I am um, the title. Pastels and pedophiles, and at first I'm like, I didn't understand. And the thing you said, QAnon, and then it all made sense. Help us to understand the book and the top subject matter. A part of the idea is that you know when you're looking at QAnon, they are completely obsessed with this idea that there is a a cabal, an elite cabal of pedophiles that are running the world. And for them, the elite cabal includes Democrats, 
and the Royal Windsor family, the Bush family, Hollywood. But they're constantly talking about pedophilia because that has a triggering effect. And especially when they're trying to recruit women, it, it almost activates their maternal instinct. And so calling someone a pedophile is the worst thing that you can do. Like that's the worst name you can call them, which is one of the reasons why they're constantly calling Joe Biden a pedophile. But the idea also with pastels is that um, this is about women. So it's um, a way in which that they are portraying their involvement as keyboard warriors, but with these softer light colored hues. Mm. No, that is that is fascinating. And as you discuss how it triggers the maternal instinct, it becomes almost an instant recruiting tool, at least getting past their initial rejection to the conspiracy side. It's almost like a gateway into the psyche of, of people who are triggered by that accusation of pedophilia. It's absolutely a gateway. And I'm so glad that one of the pictures you just showed was about Save the Children. Because last year around this time is when they started the Save the Children campaign. And and of course, and it's interesting because I've been studying terrorism for over three decades. This is how ISIS recruited women as well. Did you wanna save the children of Syria? Did you wanna help the orphans? And of course the women said, I want to help the orphans. Who's going to say no to that question? So what we did though was, as I mentioned it in the book just in passing, but I really needed data to show that this was the case. The Save the Children campaign was really focused and targeted towards white suburban women who had started to move away from President Trump. And the images that the Save the Children showed, and they talked about trafficking, which is genuinely a problem. But all the kids that they showed were white. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the charity Save the Children, 99.5% of the children are not white. And so this was really, there's this racial undertone that not only is QAnon anti-Semitic, but it is really racist too. I am. We're gonna have to talk about this for a long time to come because there's so many things that are overlaying this, right? The 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 fact that in their recruiting process, they would need to use white children because they know their base. And they know that that humanity that they extend, that, that, that maternalistic instinct might be diminished a little bit because of that racism. And so they can't get the same results if they use the same children that are actually the targets of, of trafficking. Could you just, I know you said it once, but could you talk about that more? Because that's well, so terrifying. That's absolutely the case. I mean, and there have been some very um, uh, thoroughly researched studies that For white women, they do not see children of color in the same way as they see white children. And they don't empathize the same way, they don't relate this, they don't see, oh, that's just like my five-year-old if they're seeing a five-year-old child of color. And we've seen this with, you know, calling the police because someone is selling lemonade or bottles of water or having a barbecue. You know, this emergence in the last two years of these. Karen's, you know, or barbecue Becky's or whatever the name is of the week. When it's when it's certain kinds of white women, they do not see children in the same way based on the color of their skin. But I mentioned it in the book, but I needed data. So what we did is we actually went back and we looked at Save the Children, the charity, and we have all of their images. Then we looked at what QAnon talked about in Save the Children, and then we had the data. And side by side, it's really shocking. Mm. So, what do you see that 
Have you seen any research or done any research yourself as to what they can attribute that to in terms of the white women's maternal instinct being diminished because of the race and the lack of, is it? Is it? I don't think it's intrinsic. Do you think it is cultural? Is it a product of the system that so much dehumanization of black people has have occurred in this has occurred in this country that it's almost like that's another vestige of Jim Crow and slavery is that they just simply cannot see us as human. I think that's absolutely part of it. In fact, so I had read this article and I have it in front of me. So I wanted to make sure that I gave credit to all the authors. But the article is called The Essence of Innocence, Consequences of Dehumanizing Black Children. And so I'm gonna send that to you because I think you'll find it really interesting. It is an academic article written by a number of people, including Carmen Marie Culotta at Penn State and Natalie Di Tommaso at UPenn, but also Philip Goth, at the, at the University of California. So it's got a lot of authors. It's, it's a very systematic and um, scholarly study, but in psychology. And so we've seen time and time again, whether it's that or uh, Anila Rotland has written about race and fragility in the legal distinction between juveniles and adults with the juveniles of color versus the white juveniles. So part of what I was trying to do with this book is that Sophia and I are both academics. And if I was gonna give you this to read, you know, it's really chewy with the footnotes and some of the terminology. We wanted to break it down because with the current number of people who believe in QAnon, it's probably about 30 million Americans who believe in some element of QAnon. Which means that everybody has a cousin or a friend or a coworker that is consuming this material. But what we also started to see is they are targeting communities of color. And I thought if the communities of color know how racist QAnon is, maybe we can inoculate them. They'll still want to save children, but they want to they won't want to be involved in QAnon. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. And and actually I can I'm going to get a copy of that book because we do see this recruitment happening. And I think one of the layers that that does protect is this um, um, this we don't necessarily need the data because we we know QAnon is aligned with the right wing in this country with conservatism with Donald Trump and there's it but to have the data I think would be an inoculant because that conspiracy theory once you get past that maternal instinct or that paternal instinct and you get right past that it doesn't matter that racism could be ignored um where can we get the book and where can I pick it up today? Well, the book, the book. So we we actually, I'll give you an example. So ordinarily, university press books are really expensive. We ask them, please make it cheap. So it's twenty bucks on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or anywhere you get your books. It's also there's an ebook, so you can you can download it. And the idea is that as much as we associate QAnon with Donald Trump because the cabal of blood drinking pedophiles in Hollywood and you know they're always talking about Hillary Clinton and Bill Gates and George Soros and the usual boogeymen for the the conspiracy theorists but 6% of people who identify as Democrats also believe in QAnon because when they started the Save the Children campaign, it jumped to Instagram. Mm. And it started being promoted by vegans and women who practice yoga, and we call those the QA moms. And now we have people who are formerly supporters of Bernie Sanders in QAnon. And you know, some of the more famous people who have left that have done the talk show circuit like Lenka Perone, she was a Bernie mm. lady. 
before she was QAnon. And they may not even realize how many of these tropes. So, and I'm just gonna blow your mind, Benjamin, for one last thing. There's a series of posters. It's a white child and there's a hand over its mouth so it can't scream and the kid is looking terrified. 10 different versions of this. In nine of 10 of the versions, the child is white and the hand is black or brown. Whew, um, we, I, I want to open a, a can of worms because I, I can't even go, I, I can't go back to that one, Professor Bloom. You're trying to get me out of character as a professional here. Uh, but I, I do want to ask you something that may, we may have to have a part two of this conversation. Do you see, and you're, you're, you're a fellow in international security, um, do you see any overlap in this? What um, I saw someone on Twitter refer to as a pan reactionary movement. Um, do you see anything on the global stage that mirrors this QAnon frenzy um, uh, that's to internationalize it? Is it just an American phenomenon or do you see something on the international stage that mirrors it? No, absolutely. So in chapter five of the book, we talked about the contagion effect that QAnon has jumped the shark. It has gone from the United States and Canada to the UK and France and Germany. And now it's all over the world, it's in 85 different countries. And so when I'm inside the encrypted platform seeing what they're talking about, I'm seeing QAnon in Russian, I'm seeing it in Hebrew, I'm seeing it in German, and I'm seeing it in Hindi. And this is where we have to realize no conspiracy theory has ever become a global movement the way this one is going. Wow. Professor Mia Bloom, that, that, is, um, that is terrifying, that is sobering. But I do believe um, that this conversation along with others, um, especially with that inoculant uh, in terms of the um, people of color, I think that can actually stem the tide here. So thank you so much for your book and for your work. And thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Benjamin. It was a pleasure meeting you. The pleasure is ours.